The greatest glory of a freeborn people is to transmit that freedom to their children. So what are we going to do with that freedom? How will we steward this gift, this inheritance of freedom that we have received? How's it going to affect our lives? How will it affect our choices? How will it affect our decisions, the decisions that we make on a day-to-day moment? Will we use this precious gift of freedom to please ourselves, or will we use it to please our Heavenly Father? And can the choices we make regarding our freedom, can those choices encourage others by, by what we decide to do with that? Well, those questions are answered in a very specific and very practical way in our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. You'll find that on page 987 of your church Bibles. We're in a series over Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. It's titled, The Power of Encouragement. 1 Thessalonians is all about encouragement. And Paul has spent the first three chapters of this letter just encouraging his relationship with this young church. Why, in chapter 1, he brags about them, encourages them. He says, your faith in God has been made known everywhere, all throughout Macedonia and Achaia, uh, Greece. In chapter 2, he encourages their imitation of Christ, even at the cost of suffering and persecution. And in chapter 3, he encourages them by letting them know how much he has missed them. He had to leave prematurely because of persecution. He wasn't able to stay as long as he would have liked to have stayed. And so he was worried about their faith, so he finally sent Timothy to sort of fly under the radar and to see how they were doing spiritually. And Timothy had just returned with a positive report about this church. And Paul can just, like a parent over a child, sigh relief. First Thessalonians 3.8 says, For now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. So now in First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul gives some specific instructions to this young church, all of which answer the question, how will we please God with the freedom that we've been given in Christ? What will we do with our freedom in Christ That's where we're going this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 
Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. What do we do with our freedom in Christ? Paul says, well, let's talk about sex. That got your attention, didn't it? Everybody's looking up here. I wonder how they heard this, right? Paul could have included so many other topics for this new congregation, but he wanted to talk about this particular topic. But notice his tone. You sense his tone here? It's an encouraging tone. You know, Paul says, look, I want you to know in this area, you are doing well, and I want you to continue to doing well. I mean, he says that twice in these verses, right? In verse one, he says, you know, I want, I want you to walk and to please God just as you are doing, and that you do so more and more. And then he says in verse 10, you know, for that is indeed what you are doing, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So Paul, it's not as if he's correcting wayward behavior here. He's encouraging what what the dramatic transformation of the grace of Christ has done in their lives. Keep doing this. You're doing exactly what God desires. Well, what is it they're doing that God wants them to keep on doing? Here it is. Continue to please God by your spiritually healthy and morally pure relationships. That's it. That's it. Continue to please God by your spiritually healthy and morally pure relationships. And that shows up in verse 3 here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now that's a church word, isn't it? Isn't it? What's that word mean? Well, look at the footnote. In your church Bibles, there'll be a footnote there. It says, or your holiness. Oh, that's another church word. What? What is holiness? Holiness means to be distinct, to be set apart, to be separate, to be unique, to be extraordinary, to be astonishing. God does not want you to simply be ordinary. He wants you to be extraordinary. He doesn't want you to conform to the pattern of this world. I want extraordinary men of God. I want extraordinary women of God. And I want you to walk in a way that shows the royal splendor of the one you serve. That's what we mean by holiness and sanctification. And specifically in verse 4, God wants us to exercise self-control over our bodies in holiness and honor. God wants us to honor ourselves and honor one another in our relationships. And that requires God's people to abstain from, and Paul uses the word, porneia. Abstain from Porneia, verse 3. It's the word from which we get our English word pornography. Porneia, it means sexual immorality. And it was the word that described the sexual climate of Thessalonica. Now, if you go to Thessalonica today, 
Thessalonica is a city, it's 2,500 years old, and um, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Let me just tell you about it. It's a modern city, but there's also a little bit of archaeology that's there too, and not much, because The modern city is built on top of the ancient city. And so you'll go and you'll see some archaeological remains, but I mean mainly, we don't know what to do with a 2,500-year-old city. I mean, our city of Champaign is, what, almost 160 years old, 159, I think, is what I saw this morning when I Googled how old is Champaign, you know. We don't know what to do with a 2,500-year-old city. But if we could clear away all of the modernness of today's Thessalonica and we could could check uh, the the excavations, we would would hear stories, we would see stories. And, And it would be a story that would describe an ancient city of many vices. Thessalonica was a busy trade city. It was was a harbor town and uh, had a major Roman highway running through it. And and, and uh, the the business of coming to and from Thessalonica, uh, they demanded three things, drink, gambling, and sex. And part of the economy of the city was keeping its visitors satisfied. Uh, Thessalonica uh, had a theater district uh, whose shows were uh, often violent and sexually crude. Uh, Young men in particular were expected to have an active sex life with slaves and prostitutes and lovers. Bisexuality was more common in Macedonia and in Achaia than in other parts of the Roman Empire because of the shortage of marriageable women. And friendships between men might even be cemented by sex. And there was a clear double standard in Greek and Roman marriages. The husband could cheat on the wife, but the wife better not. And all this behavior was aided and abetted uh, by the pagan Greek religious temple system. The Greek goddess Aphrodite was the symbol of sexual license and the patroness of uh, prostitutes. And pagan temples in Thessalonica displayed statues of human body parts that would make a sailor blush. And yet in this spiritually dark culture, this sexually dark city, a church community was birthed. A community of light and holiness and righteousness. A church community that came into existence not because of the uh, moral efforts of its members, but because of the words and actions and signs and wonders and life and death and burial and resurrection of their high king, Jesus Christ. And the king's sexual ethic came straight from Genesis chapter 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think that's what Paul is getting at in verse 2 when he says, You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Genesis 2, 24 is the foundational Verse which teaches us that the best, safest, and only place where God wants one flesh intimacy is between a man and a woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage. 
And porneia, or sexual immorality, includes any sexual relations outside the husband-wife marital relationship. And this means disciplined fidelity to one's vows if married. And this means disciplined abstinence if not married. And both disciplines reveal true knowledge of God. Which leads to this question. What is the ground upon which Paul stands as he gives this instruction to this church in the Lord? What's, What's his starting point when he teaches on healthy relationships and morally pure love? Well, his starting point is God. It's God himself. Paul David Tripp has written an excellent book I recommend called Sex and Money, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies. He says something very profound about sexuality. He says sex is deeply spiritual. Your your sexual life will always be an expression of what you truly worship. Sex is deeply religious. See, in sex, either you are self-consciously submitting to God or you are setting yourself up as God. Sex is not just a human relationship thing. Sex is never simply a horizontal thing. Sex is always connecting you to the God who created your body, who gave you eyes to see and a heart that desires, who tells you how you are to steward this precious aspect of your personhood. And when we express our sexuality the way God intended, we reveal true knowledge about who God is. And when we express our sexuality the way God intended, we show that that sexual intimacy is beautiful and powerful and wonderful and a pleasurable gift from God himself. God is not a prude who gets embarrassed about bodies and functions. Sex is good because God is good. He created us. He designed us. He knows how our bodies work best. He gave us a book in the Bible which is a powerful picture of beautiful marital sexual love, the Song of Solomon. And every time a husband and wife share sexual intimacy, it is an opportunity to renew their vows. This makes the marriage bed a holy place. The marriage bed is to be a dedicated sanctuary of self-forgetting, self-giving love. The marriage bed is to be the sacred space where husband, wife, in full view of a holy God, can share his deep and mysterious love in complete safety and security. And in this way, committed marital love reveals the true knowledge of our amazing God. And the pleasure of sex is meant to remind me of the glory of my intimate union with Christ, a glory that only grace can produce. The ground of this command is God himself, the designer, the creator, the maker, the instructor, And Paul says also, the avenger. He knows us best. Ben Patterson is a pastor um, who wrote these words about the power of uh, physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. 
He wrote, I'll never forget the pastoral visit I had with a woman whose husband had just died that morning. She had nursed him at home through a protracted and painful bout with cancer. And when I walked into her living room, his corpse was still on the hospital bed. She had wheeled beside the fireplace. I stood on one side of the bed, she on the other, as I prayed for her. Before I finished praying, I opened my eyes to see her massaging her husband's feet and patting his cheeks and rubbing his calves and hands as she must have done innumerable times in their marriage. Patterson wrote, I was deeply moved at what I saw and as I drove home, I thought, so this is what sex is finally all about. One man and one woman to the end, loving and caring for each other's bodies with their bodies. So when we express sexuality the way God intended, we reveal true knowledge about our amazing God. On the other hand, when we don't express our sexuality the way God intended, we conceal the true knowledge of God. And I think that's what's behind verse 5 when Paul speaks of the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's not talking about information points. He's talking about relationship. You see, Satan is a deceiver and a distorter of all that is true. And Satan has never had an original thought in his existence. He's a plagiarist. He copies God's beauty and then twists it inwardly. He says, don't make it about God. Make it about you and the sovereign self. And the sovereign self still speaks. The sovereign self still asserts itself. The sovereign self says, I get to choose what I want to do with my own body. The sovereign self says, well, as long as it's consensual, it's okay. It's my business. The sovereign self says, if I feel attracted to someone else, male or female, then I should be able to act out on those feelings because that's how I've been made. And who are you to tell me otherwise? Who are you to judge me? Who is anyone to be sovereign over me? I'm sovereign over me. The sovereign self says, I want you to satisfy my sexual appetite, but I don't want you as an exclusive covenant partner for life. I want to use your body for my pleasure but as a whole person, I I don't want you. I don't want to have to be responsible for you. I don't want to have to concern myself in any other way with you. I just want my craving satisfied and then move on. And our soldiers died for that. That's why we decorate our graves for the sovereign self? Really? 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 Paul Tripp says, in sex, you're either worshiping the sovereign God by willingly submitting to his wisdom or the sovereign self in writing up your own rules. And your sexual activity always expresses trust in someone or something. So so who will be the starting point in your life concerning this matter? Who will be the unchallenged authority over your life in this matter. Paul begins with God. And God did not design our bodies for casual recreational sex. It's too powerful for that. Listen, listen. Gravity does its work 
whether you believe in God or not. And sexual intimacy does its work whether you're a Christian or not. And that's why Cameron Diaz said to Tom Cruise in the movie Vanilla Sky, when you have sex with someone, your body makes promises even if you don't. How profound. Paul says to this church, I want you to continue to please God through good sex in marriage between a man and a woman for life. Sex is good because God is good. Sex is an expression of worshiping the sovereign God or the sovereign self. Choose God. Choose God. Well, how can we be helped in this? How does God help us live in a way that pleases him? These verses give us three resources. And I want to talk about each of these resources because they are powerful resources to help us please God with our lives. And the first resource is not an it, it's a he, the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, God gives you his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ comes to live in you to do through you what you cannot do alone, what we cannot do alone. We are not left to live by ourselves to live a life pleasing to God. He helps us. He comes alongside of us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. And his Holy Spirit encourages us, comes alongside of us, loves us, fills us, leads us, urges us, and prompts us to holiness. Holiness means committing every area of our life from sex to food to time to work to the kingship of Christ Holiness means asking God, who, who do you want me to love today? How can I love others so that the Spirit can grow? His fruit in my life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Holiness is not legalism. It's a way of life. It's filled with twists and turns and mistakes and growth and uncertainty and reward. And holiness often looks different person to person, though the fruit of the Spirit is the same in all. God gives you his Holy Spirit, Paul says. And then God gives you the church family. He gives us to one another. I think that's what verses 9 through 12 are about. Paul encourages you know, both married and unmarried to love each other as family in a holy and honorable way. And this word brotherly love, we're familiar with it. It's the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Family terms abound in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians because we are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. And, and these spiritual parents and spiritual siblings are in our lives to challenge us and inspire us and spur us on. And yes, to annoy us to love and good deeds. So you keep annoying. Are we close enough to one another that we can annoy one another 
in love and good deeds. You keep annoying each other in Jesus' name. (laughs) Paul says, you're doing this rather well. You're doing exactly what God wants. Keep on annoying. Gives the Holy Spirit. He gives the church family. And then... And, and this is an often overlooked resource, but I'm telling you, it is sweet. On either side of his instructions about pleasing God with pure love, Paul speaks of our destiny. Our destiny. Do you see that? Do you see that in chapter 3, verse 13, and then chapter 4, verse 13? Paul speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There is a destiny for us. Listen, listen, if it is true that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, if it is true that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is seated there in his heavenly glory, and if it is true that anyone in Christ is a new creation, the old is gone, and behold, all things are new, then Jesus is not just a private cult figure. Jesus is emperor of the universe. And there is a new world coming our way. Your body is not simply a toy to be discarded at death. It's not a miserable or worthless rag to be uh, disposed of and thus just morally insignificant. Your emotions are not just chance electrical pulses that will flicker out in silence when your heart stops beating. At the coming of Christ All will be renewed and restored. Being human is so precious and God takes it so seriously that he has promised to bring out a new addition. And so we pursue holiness not because we cower out of fear of punishment but because we so clearly understand what it truly means to be human and we clearly understand who our king is. We know who he is. We know who we are. And we know where our destiny lies. Amen. Dr. Harry Schomburg is a counselor who um, has helped couples and particularly pastors break the bondage of porneia, sexual immorality, pornography. He wrote an article titled, I Hate Porn, But I Love Jesus. I hate porn because it is a perversion of what God created in man and woman. I hate porn because it exploits women made in the image of God into an image made for man's lust. I hate porn because it objectifies women into a consumable product instead of a glorious image-bearing creature of God. I hate porn because it takes the soul-satisfying experience of sex with a covenantally committed spouse and turns it into a twisted, soul-shrinking experience of self-sex. I hate porn because it turns sons and daughters of God into slaves of sex. I hate porn because it turns potential missionaries into powerless Christians. I hate porn because it destroys a marriage even before it begins. I hate porn because it extends adolescence and keeps men boys. 
I hate porn because I am tired of sitting in my office with sobbing, confused, devastated wives and broken, embarrassed, condemned men who got caught. I hate porn. But I love Jesus. I love Jesus because he loves people with porn problems. I love Jesus because he is mighty enough to free porn-enslaved hearts. I love Jesus because he who knew no porn addiction became porn addiction so that the porn addict might become the righteousness of God in him. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in that one brilliant verse, Paul slays the porn problem. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. Christ became our substitute. It was as if he became the porn addict. He received the penalty due for our perversion and we became the righteous son or daughter of God with all of its benefits because of him in one act of love and justice in the cross of Christ through faith in him. We are clean. We are holy. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are free. Let me say it again. We are free. The greatest glory of our freeborn Savior was transmitting his gift of freedom by grace through faith to his people. Now then, what will we do with this freedom? 